Good news, good news, good news. Welcome to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Good news to celebrate because uh, we've got tickets to give away, a pair of tickets for the Fathom Events event coming up starting today. Actually, Lifemark, the Lifemark movie, uh, the Kendrick Brothers, Kirk Cameron. It's a great pro-adoption movie. It's in theaters today, and it will be in theaters t- uh, September 9th through the 15th. We're giving away a pair of tickets Right, well, during my conversation with Stephen and Alex Kendrick, the uh, two of the executive producers of LifeMark, and that's coming up in hour number two of today's edition of The Bottom Line. Also, during the second uh, half hour of the program, since Sunday is also the 21st anniversary of the commemoration of the 9-11 attacks on the uh, World Trade Center towers and the Pentagon, um, we'll be sharing some thoughts uh, of mine and yours uh, with regard to where we are as a nation 21 years after the attacks and does it still get to us? Does it still make us think and reflect about being a better nation, being a better people? First, though, also coming up, part of the Good News Friday, part of this uh, program today is that this coming Sunday is Grandparents Day. And I recently had a conversation with Dr. Jim Burns of the Homeward Ministry. Uh, Jim has written a great book on having a good relationship with your adult children. And he also recently wrote a book about grandparents and embracing the empty nest season, finding joy in the empty nest. Let's get into part one of that conversation right now on this Good News Friday edition of The Bottom Line. From the studios of The Bottom Line Show here in Southern California, I'm Roger Marsh, and that's why Dr. Jim Burns is here, because it's in Southern California, so is he, the president founder of Homeward Ministries, where we have worked and continue to work together. Had, gosh, it's, we're talking about 20 years plus oh my that we've been working together, from the short yeah. features to the long form. To... Did, did I have long hair then yes. and yes, on my shoulders, did. or did, yes, was I you, bald yeah. like I am no, now? No, <laughs> no, you, no but uh, trust me, I, was, I wasn't quite as gray or you know, <laughs> otherwise as I am yeah. here. Finding joy in the empty nest discover purpose and passage passion in the next phase of life we have a link for the book up at the bottomlineshow.com jim i want to go off script a little bit yeah. because this is an issue that has been in our family discussion i know you and i know people who've had to face this too it's that failure to launch issue where yeah. and you mentioned and i'm grateful that you shared um, so honestly about the fact you've had boomerang kids we, we've yeah. got boomerang kids in our world right. i mean the, it seems like either the world is tougher or they made some choices that knocked them on their butt and they got to right. kind, of, kind of regroup right. but there comes a point where i would imagine for the empty nesters moving ahead involves maybe packing up the family homestead and moving to a different state either for financial reasons or you're going after grandkids or whatever what is your recommendation to a family that says we have to because i've talked to a number of parents who've the same type of situation. If we don't move, they won't leave, you know, or it's, it's a tough situation and they almost feel like they have to get out of that. Right. Well, there's a couple of parallel, really deep questions within your question, I think, because I don't think you run from your kids. I think sometimes you have to buck it up and say, look at, you know, right now you're in a situation where there's a failure to launch and we're going to help you launch and we're going to develop an exit strategy. Right. Right. So the exit strategy doesn't have to mean you moving to, you know, Texas or New Mexico to run away from your kids or whatever. I like Texas and New Mexico. I just, (laughs) we're in California, right? Yeah. But so that, so the issue becomes, I think there you just look in their face and you begin to help them. It's called tough love. It means they've been making some poor choices perhaps. And so you, tough love isn't shunning them. No. Tough love isn't actually even always being angry with them. Tough Mm -hmm. love is allowing the consequences of their poor decisions to take place. Part of that is, You've been living off of us too long. It's time to 
help you launch here right. because right. the bottom line is always responsible adulthood. And actually, part of a responsible adulthood is being fi- uh, financially responsible. Yes. So if you're uh, the helicopter parent and you're always enabling them, the question you have to ask is, am I helping? We can help. Or am I enabling dependency on me? And a lot of parents get to the stage, the ones who run, mm-hmm. they go, we were enabling dependency, so we're moving. <laughs> and sometimes they find their kids you know, moving, and now Jason they're in a place that's yeah. not good. Mm-hmm. Parents, adults moving, I mean, you know, empty nesters moving, that's real normal. A yeah. lot of them do. Um, I said to my wife yesterday, I go, I hope we never have to move. What would move make me move would be if all of my kids moved. Mm-hmm. And we, because right now... Uh, there's a legacy going on, and that legacy is with my three grandkids, right. and I want to be near them. Right. So <clears throat> we're fortunate to have our three grandkids living in California. But if everybody in our family moved because of finances or whatever sure. to another state, um, I honestly would be open to doing that because I want – I understand it's very possible to be long-distance grandparents. I know people who are, and there's some great principles out there. In fact, I write about it in the book Finding Joy. Well, in the empty nest, but I'd want to be closer. Sure, sure. and and uh, I again, a lot of people can't do that. But yeah, yeah, I think that's. I don't think like for me personally, I'll just be honest. I know yeah. I'm going to hurt people's feelings. I would if I lived in Michigan, I wouldn't move to Florida and say I'm going to see the kids. You know, once a year if they come down and visit us, I'm going to put on my you know same matching shirt and pants and <laughs> and just play golf. I'm, that to me is not. Yeah. Right. What I would want to do. Mm-hmm. I understand some people do that, but I don't understand that. This is the time of greatest legacy with my grandkids. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to move necessarily for my just for my kids. I, I'm going to move for grandkids okay. because my kids, they're adults. They've been launched and they can do what they're going to do. I want to stay in touch with them, obviously. Right, right. Part of that is reinventing that relationship with your adult children. Mm-hmm. But again, the grandkids are a big deal to that move part. So we mm-hmm. went off script, yes. Mm-hmm. But – you know, so we talked failure to launch. That's one whole story. Right. But if it means just, you know, moving because you can, I understand a lot of people will do that. But don't move away from the family. Stay in touch. Stay in touch, whether it be FaceTime on a regular basis or whatever, but stay in touch. You can do long-distance grandparenting, but it's not as easy. Well, you know, and I'm glad you brought that up, Jim, because one of the principles you write about in the book, see, we're coming back on topic, um, in Finding Joy in the Empty Nest is the idea that you want to finish well. And so for some people, what that means is, okay, I'm going to take a look at where we are right now. And you've counseled couples, and I have too, that are in great financial health. They can stay where they are. They can be generous, grandma and grandpa. They can do that in their empty nest years and have the spark and have the romance and all that stuff. Other people got beat up financially. Maybe they took it in the, you know, whatever it was. And they're looking at this and saying, okay, well, we're going to have to make a few decisions here that are going to alter what we do. But the name of the game, I love how you put this, is that whatever it you have to do to make your top priorities the top priority. Right. Do that. Right. And what's that. interesting about the top priorities, that just helps you finish well. Yeah. If I'm focusing on stuff that's out there that it's not about my priorities and I easily can be distracted, I think anybody can, then I'm not going to finish well, Roger. And, you know, I didn't think about finishing well when I was in my 20s, 30s. Sure even 40s probably. But now that I'm in the empty nest, I'm thinking about how do I finish well? And and in several ways, how do I finish well as a dad? How do I finish well as a husband to Kathy? How do I finish well as a person who is a Christ follower? And what that means partly is putting some of my time and my energy into my own soul. And so what I've done, you know, this morning, I spent some time uh, reading the Bible. I spent some time journaling. And then I picked up a book that I'm partway through 
um, by Erwin McManus mm. on Jesus, and mm-hmm. I did that. Well, I normally wouldn't have read that book. I would have been out the door and you know doing my thing. But I'm finding in my empty nest years, it gives me a better chance to finish well if I embrace my own spiritual journey. Right. And uh, and that means being faithful in a small group. That means being faithful faithful uh, to my to how I'm going to do my marriage and how I'm going to do my kids and, and do my grandkids. But finishing well now becomes a big deal uh, for me. And again, I'm not planning on dying. Are you, you know, quote Monty Python. I'm not dead, dead yet. yet. <laughs> um, you knew that. You know the quote. Sure. But, you know, it's not about death, mm-hmm. but it's a, it's a great – the empty nest is a great place to put some energy into the things that we could have done later. I know somebody who, they, as soon as they got in the empty nest, they went to the gym. And they mm-hmm. hadn't been at the gym, and they said, I'm going to re – invent the way I do my body and faith and food. And man, I look at them now and I'm like, wow, you're like a star. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It's because in the empty nest, they had more time and they put that time into doing something that was meaningful to their to their body and their health. And, you know, so what, how, how you finish well deals with, um, you know, the better decisions that you can make and I think those are soul decisions. One of the decisions you write about in the book, Finding Joy in the Empty Nest, Discover Purpose and Passion in the Next Phase of Life, Dr. Jim Burns, is the idea of friendships, yeah. the idea of having connection points. I remember uh, my dad was and mom were out of town. One of their oldest friends from college had passed away. They'd actually, my, my parents set Warren and his wife, Phyllis, on a, up on a date. Hey, they were cool. the ones who brought them together. It's a really oh. sweet story. Phil had passed away, and Warren had died also. And my parents were out of town for some reason. They couldn't be there. I think my dad couldn't you know, bear to be there. Mm. So I went and I was, I, I got to be a pallbearer in this guy's funeral. And it was really a, an honor. We were in Rose Hills up in Whittier and being there. And I was watching the photos and the videos and the memories. And I noticed something that all of these people had that I didn't in my then situation. And that was, they had been friends since college. Yeah. And here they were, and the ones who were left were there. As a matter of fact, when this guy was in a memory care facility, the wife, uh, who had been widowed of him, one of their dear friends, showed up every day knowing his wife wasn't there, and she cared for him. Wow. Kind of like, it was just beautiful wow. to watch Jackie caring for Warren. You know, and now, yeah. now he's passed, and she's with somebody else. But the friendship part, talk about why that, yeah. it's not superficial. You're, no. This is when the friendships really mean something. No, it really is. I, and a woman said to me, you know, I didn't have any idea that my best friends would happen after I was 50. Mm. But that meant she was being proactive about right, it. Right, right. And so I find that friendships in the 50s uh, are deeper. You're not trying to impress anybody. Um, they're much more accepting. They all know that we've done goofy things. So everybody has more grace you know, <laughs> about it. But it's also sometimes harder. So it means you've got to find places. And, you know, I'm not suggesting that the local bar is the place to go find your best friends. But I am suggesting as a Christian that maybe, you know, an active role at church or, um, you know, sports or whatever. I've got a guy, a friend of mine who's in his 50s who his best friends are all of his softball buddies because mm. they go play softball and then they go, you know, they they work out by playing softball and then they go eat, you know, donuts and um, and other things that don't help as much. Right. But um, you know what? Th- those are great relationships. I was thinking this week, Kathy and I were talking about a fishing trip I'm on. I'm, I'm in a small mm. group, yeah. been in it for 20 years, and we're going fishing. And she goes, wow, you guys are going like for five days, which is a long time, longer than we usually go. And I, and I thought to myself, you know, I could cut it back by one day. They'd still be fishing, but I could cut it back by one day. And I don't really need to fish. But I thought, you know what? I would miss out on one day of laughing, 
for us because we're a small group praying um, enjoying you know the fish stories and yeah, all that yeah. and I went you know what there's nothing more important I could do and I'm actually a better husband and a better father when I'm connected with a small group right well those right. are my friends yeah. I would do anything for them yeah. um, but it's taken many years to be open and honest and transparent and vulnerable um, somebody once said show me who your friend is and I'll show you who you are mm. Well, just like we talk about with kids who have peer pressure and the pressure to conform and all that about, you know, I'm speaking uh, this next Wednesday uh, at a local church and I'm talking about peer pressure and I'm helping parents kind of look at peer pressure and peer influence. Well, guess what? As adults, we have peer pressure and peer influence as well. A lot of times we don't work on that and we get really, really lonely. I find that my friends and my friendships are, are so much more meaningful now. And I've had to learn. I'm not really all that proactive. I'm kind of more reactive. I've had to learn to be more proactive. And so I, this next week, I'm I'm having lunch with my friend Tick. That's his, his first mm-hmm. name. And we don't see each other very often. He lives in San Diego. I live in Orange County in California. And so that's a little bit of a jump. So we'll go halfway. And, you know, we, we just pick right back up. But I actually said, hey, when do you want to have lunch? And that's not typically me. Mm-hmm. But I'm in my, you know, finishing well stage. I'm wanting to do more of that as we think about how important friendships are. Yeah, they certainly are. And this is one of the many principles you'll find in the brand new book just out today by Dr. Jim Burns called Finding Joy in the Empty Nest, Discover Purpose and Passion in the Next Phase of Life. The link is up at thebottomlineshow.com. As we continue, we'll talk a little bit more about the grandparenting relationship. And also, if you're listening to this conversation right now and you're saying, well, that's great for you, but you keep talking about husband and wife together. And in my case, it's just me. How do you do the empty nest when you're a single nester? We'll talk about that with Dr. Jim Burns coming up on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Want to continue receiving income into retirement with little market risk? Dennis Wilson and Wilson Financial Services can help you secure a permanent income and benefits addressing your risk tolerance with professional advisory knowledge. You have a large 401k or IRA as your retirement nest egg. How about a four-dimensional plan that will pay you and your spouse income for life without stock market risk? How about we include inflation benefits so your income goes up annually? How about we include extra income benefits for long-term care? And if you need one or both, you both have it. That's right, permanent income inflation benefits, long-term care benefits with no market risk. We have put over $50 million of our clients' money in the 4D account in the last few years. These clients are sleeping way better at night. Learn more when you call Wilson Financial today at 800-696-9970. 800-696-9970. Wilson Financial for simply better alternatives. Dr. Jim Burns is my in-studio guest today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. I've been holding up this book all day long, Finding Joy in the Empty Nest, uh, Discover Purpose and Passion in the Next Phase of Life. I hope, Josh, I got this straight. Maybe Tamara can straighten it out when it's all done. You know, Tamara's our video expert now, too, you know, for the show. That's impressive. Very. And, I, I, you know, I always thought you had a radio face. I know I have a radio face. But now you're on video. You're going to have to clean it up a little bit. Well, why do you think I've got the book up here and the (laughs) mic down here? (laughs) Still want that. uh, I'm Wilson. Right in radio. Just exactly. like, hey, neighbor, how exactly. you doing? <laughs> let's let's take a look, Jim, at, at the, I teased this before the break, but this is a very real uh, scenario with the gray divorce being so common. Yeah. A lot of people find themselves in the empty nest season and it's just them. And yeah. so the friendship part, great, but the spark of romance, there's a whole bunch of other right. different rules. What, what are some good ways for single people? adults to do the empty nest thing. Well, fascinating enough that you said that because I told uh, my publisher I wouldn't write this book unless I had a 
chapter on the single mm. and empty nest. And a lot of times people just go, oh, is this a marriage book? Because they think when I'm writing about empty nest that I'm thinking about empty nest marriage. Right. I am, right. but I'm not totally thinking about empty nest marriage mm-hmm. because, again, the principles, I wanted every single principle to be related to a single empty nester because there are millions. You know what I did is I interviewed um, my daughter's mother-in-law who has been single f- for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Her name is Carolyn, and she's a beautiful person. And so I, I interviewed her. I said, how do you do this as a single? You've been single for a long, long time. And, and she went right to things like, I've really had to be extra proactive about uh, friendships. I've volunteered to make a difference in different you know, organizations. Her son, my daughter's husband, uh, went to a Christian school, Santa Fe Christian and more of the San Diego area. And she said, I, you know, I, I, I found fulfillment doing that. And, and I jumped into church. And uh, and I found other people, and I she said I needed not just singles, but I also needed some married couples that I could kind of interact with, mm-hmm. and so I joined some of that. And she said, you know, it's it's interesting because it's just our lot in life. But she said some of my friends who were single, and they went into an empty nest and immediately got married because they were lonely, rightly so. I understand that because she, she'd had a hit. Her husband had died, mm. and her kids left. Wow. But what what I'm saying is is they didn't make a good mis- uh, a good decision because the mistake was they jumped into re- a relationship that was not healthy. Mm. And so I want to caution those in the single empty nest, you know, now just because it's quiet, it it doesn't mean that we jump into uh, some kind of a relationship that is not going to benefit us. You can be fully human and fully um, alive as a single as well. And yet at the same time, I know a lot of people who are now in those single years, they said, you know, I was so busy raising the kids, I didn't even look up, and now they are in a relationship, or they right. are starting to do that. We, uh, You and I have a mutual friend who single for years and years, this woman, and now she's beginning to, her kids are out of the house, and she is beginning to, you know, date in a more active mm-hmm. way. Fantastic. Good. But every person is different on this. And this is where, as a Christian, you have to really be in touch with the Holy Spirit and really work on your own self, because for some people, it is finding you know, someone else, but for someone else, it's finding, you know, deeper meaning within your own life and you're still living in the single life. Yes. Dr. Jim Burns is in studio with me today here on The Bottom Line, and we're talking about brand new book, Finding Joy in the Empty Nest, Discover Purpose and Passion in the Next Phase of Life. It's out today, and we've got a link up at thebottomlineshow.com. Jim, before we get into the grandparent thing, we've got a few minutes left here, but I want to, let's take a look at the other side of the equation here. There are adult children whose parents are in empty nest mode now. Right. And, you know, you see the cliche about the mom, dad, what happened to you? Dad colored his hair and got a Corvette. <laughs> and, you know, mom got a facelift or whatever. You're thinking, whoa, whoa. Right. And that's not what you're talking about. But I would no. imagine that if parents had been hunkered down in survival mode, we're just trying to get our kids into responsible right. adulthood. If the parents start taking care of themselves a little better or right. doing a lot of things you're, you're saying – they might get a few raised eyebrows like, what do you mean you're doing that? I mean, talk, how, do, how do you prepare for the pushback? What, what's a healthy level or what, what is an unhealthy I'm, level? I'm smiling at that because although we've not done the Corvette, we've not done facelifts, obviously, if you can see this on the video part. <laughs> you don't and, need And uh, Kathy need doesn't it, need yeah. a facelift. She's beautiful. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think part of that is just the communication with your kids, yes. letting them know what's going on. And, and so f- for Kathy and I, we've actually tried to communicate. I don't know that we do it perfectly, but we've tried to communicate with our kids that, hey, we've got a little bit more time. 
actually, we have a little bit more money, too. Not mm-hmm. that we're super rich, but right. we have more money. Well, you're not shelling it out on all those kids. Totally. Things, right? Yeah. You, you have no idea, kids, <laughs> what we were spending on you. You had well, cheerleaders. Oh, my, my gosh. My kids yeah. now understand that because they're all married and they all are you know, the, Steve, I, yeah. you know, I, one of my daughters said, I had no idea that we, have we always had to pay for like trash pickup and, <laughs> and electricity and all this. Like, oh, yeah, that's why we always told you to drop uh-huh, the light. Yeah. But the point being is that I think it's part of the communication process. So um, even having conversations about finances, having conversations about, you know, some of the things that that uh, that Kathy and I are involved in now. You know what? I think they like that, even though they might disagree. They're like, you're doing that again. Mm-hmm. That's OK. It's it's still part of the conversation. You know, we're we're moving them from dependence on us to independence, but not totally because we still talk and communicate and relate and celebrate birthdays and everything. So when we do that, it, it, they have to be a part of our of our life. The tenth principle that Dr. Jim Burns outlines in his new book, "Finding Joy in the Empty Nest," is involving grandparents. The role of grand you and I remember what our grandparents were like. Mm-hmm. You know, saw them once a year, twice a year. Right. So my mom's mother, she was kind of right down the street. They were very close. But then growing up, then my parents were kind of, it was a mixed bag on either side. Yeah. And now I, I look at the super involved grandparent yeah. like you, the distantly involved like me, and the we moved to Florida like somebody else, <laughs> right. you know, those people. You just described grandparents. Right, well. that's just it. Well, okay, it, it, I'm going to take care of me and we'll see you at Christmas, right. you know, that type of thing. You, you talk about being the grooviest grandparent in town. Right. I love that that. that Little, uh, I'm trying to bring there. the word back, Roger. Yeah, yeah. I'm old, and it, I love that word. It never went anywhere. Yeah. It's right there with white leather shoes and big white belts. It never <laughs> yeah, went well, anywhere. Those. Um, talk about how to balance that, because yeah. some grandparents might want to try a little too hard. Some might yeah. want to be a little standoffish. Right, right. How do you do it? Well, I think you can be groovy, if you would, um, by being the party-time grandparent. So my grandma, Nini, and she could cuss mm-hmm. like a sailor. I don't know how sailors cuss, <laughs> but boy, she could cuss. So I, they, we always say she cussed like a sailor. Yeah. But, you know, she was the one who never gave us socks and underwear. Mm-hmm. She gave us fun gifts and not expensive gifts. She didn't have a lot of money. Right. But she was the one who, um, you know, she engaged with us. Mm. And she was a little goofy and she was she kind of waddled. She was four foot 11 by four foot 11. <laughs> I, uh, I treasured this woman. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, she was always thinking about us. And, yeah. you know, she'd say, come, come here. And she'd, she'd get this old car that she had. And then she'd go, I brought you something. And it would be like a Snickers candy bar. But, you know, I'm, you know, eight and I'm yeah. like, I love this woman. Okay. Yeah, right. So um, don't tell your mother, she'd say. And then she'd go, oh, I have one too. You know, it was just great. I love that. Yes. But, you know, so I think it's the being a party time grandparent. I think it's um, living on, I mean, just doing what you can to celebrate their life. And um, and realizing that, like my even my six year old grandson James, who at one time you know we were BFFs, we're still sort of BFFs. But you know I pick him up sometimes from school, and uh, he'll go, Papa Jay, can I go to the park? And when he's at the park, mm. he's just I'm gone. Bye. So I'm yeah. I'm standing there with you know younger you know pregnant mom and a dad mm-hmm. who's like trying to get his kid off of the swing or whatever. Yeah. But you know what? It's a joy. Yeah. And so I want to be able to do that. So I want to be as engaged as possible. The other thing I would say, no matter what, even if you're a long-distance grandparent, is support your kids, your, yes. own, your own kids. And so for us, we're fortunate because our daughter, Christy, lives near us. And so we can say, hey, look, at on your which, which is your date night? Because we want to watch the kids. Well, we, we do want to watch the kids, and that's a joy for us. The truth is we're helping them have a date night. Right, too. We're not paying for their date night, but we're helping them have a date night, mm-hmm. which which was hard for us because our grandparents, our kids, I mean, our kids' grandparents were not around. So we had right. to co-op babysitting and do all the other things that were harder. Be the parent, the grandparent that is most 
positive, and we mentioned the word cheerleading, cheerleading to those kids. Um, you can do that from afar. Yeah, definitely can. Great principles. Fantastic book. Really reading our mail. <laughs> so a lot of our yeah. bottom line listeners are going to benefit from this. Dr. Jim Burns, the book is called Finding Joy in the Empty Nest, Discover Purpose and Passion in the Next Phase of Life. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and hopefully I'm giving Josh and Tamara a good look at it here on camera here, too. You can find this video, by the way, at myhopenow.com once this is all said and done and we go through post-production. Dr. Jim Burns, always a pleasure. Roger. Congratulations on the, on the book. Thank you. I love doing it, and I wanted to be with you on this Let's day. make it the number one book on Amazon. What Amen. And that concludes my conversation with Dr. Jim Burns, parenting and family expert and author of the outstanding book called Finding Joy in the Empty Nest, Discover Purpose and Passion in the Next Phase of Life. And with Grandparents Day coming up this Sunday, I thought this was an appropriate resource to give away. Now, we have not one, not two, but three copies of Finding Joy in the Empty Nest to give away, and I want you to have them. So give us a call, 800-227-5278, is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Teresa standing by, awaiting your calls. Uh, regardless of what season of grandparenting you're in, finding joy in the empty nest will be a blessing to you. This great book by Dr. Jim Burns, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800 That's the number to get you through to the bottom line. My thanks again to Dr. Jim Burns, parenting and family expert par excellence for stopping by the studio recently, or even today, <laughs> to talk about uh, his brand new book called Finding Joy in the Empty Nest, Discover Purpose and Passion in the Next Phase of Life. We're giving away three copies of this book right now, so you have a almost guaranteed shot of winning something. Uh, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278. That's the number to get you through to the bottom line. Um, I know a lot of people who hit this empty nest season and they look forward to it. I'm glad the kids are out and about. Hopefully they'll give us a couple of grandkids and then we can visit them whenever we want to, spoil them whenever we want to, and send them home. Um, I know some other people who dread the empty nest season because it can be a lot more work than you think of. I talked to a grandpa recently. He and his wife wound up having to adopt their granddaughter because of a situation where his son, who he wound up losing his life, and uh, the girl's mother was not able to care for her. Whether you are looking forward to this or whether you're dreading this, the empty nest can be a place where you do find passion and purpose in your life. And Jim Burns ca encapsulates how to do that in his book called Finding Joy in the Empty Nest. We've got three copies to give away, 800-227-5278. That's the number to get you through to the bottom line. Okay, coming up next, uh, this coming Sunday, in addition to being Grandparents Day is also the 21st anniversary of the 9-11 attacks at the World Trade Center Tower and the Pentagon. How have we as a nation moved on? How is it still affecting us? Is it Does it really have the same impact it did 21 years ago? I'll reflect on some recent statistics involving the shutting down of a 9-11 museum, but also uh, changing attitudes from young adults as to what 9-11 means to them. That's coming up next as the bottom line continues. Right after you get into an accident, you need to call Stephanie Cover of Cover Law to begin the process of healing. Too many people make the wrong choice and try to handle their case on their own. Don't be gullible. Your insurance company does not have your best interests in mind. Their job is to save money, not help you recover. Stephanie's priority is you. She will help you recover wholly, mind, body, and spirit, as well as get you the settlement you deserve. Begin your recovery by contacting Stephanie first and follow her instructions to streamline your healing process. 
Stephanie has over 25 years of experience and knows how to get you healed and restored. Although your friends and family may have good intentions, they are not personal injury attorneys, and therefore they do not know the best way to help you. Stephanie Cover does, and she will help you put the pieces back together financially, physically, and spiritually. You need to write down her number now, 877-214-4935, or go to kbrightradio.com slash Law. Your healing begins with Cover Law. Well, welcome to this special edition of The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Typically, you would tune in right now and hear a Good News Friday segment about the good news about what's happening in the culture. And there are, there's a lot of good news to report. But this is an interesting weekend for us here in the United States because there are two things happening this weekend that are, I think, worth noting. Uh, not the least of which because they both involve my situation. The first is Sunday is Grandparents' Day. It's a national holiday we don't get any time off, but it's recognized as the second Sunday in the month of September. And the second Sunday in the month of September is the day that we honor everyone who was in the grandparenting season. And everyone who is celebrating Grandparents Day um, will be celebrating uh, knowing that there are six million grandparents right now in the United States of America who are currently providing primary care, if not uh, as the custodial care, if not having adopted uh, their grandchildren. I mean, every time I think of uh, the role of grandparents in modern culture, I think of a phrase that I've been seeing more and more on social media that says, if you raise your kids right, you can spoil your grandkids. But if you spoil your kids, you'll wind up raising your grandchildren. So words to live by and words to think about. Um, Also coming up this Sunday, in addition to it being a grandparents day, is also the 21st commemoration. I hate to say anniversary because anniversary usually has a positive connotation, but it's the 21st commemoration of the terrorist attacks on the Twin Towers and the uh, Pentagon and the four attacks actually that were planned and three that actually carried out on September 11, 2001 at the hands of terrorists. And it was just a, it was a terrible time. And uh, I, I, there was an article that caught my eye recently that I wanted to dig into a little bit before we take a look at back at where we as a nation have come over the past 21 years with regard to terrorism, with regard to globalism, with regard to our own fears about those types of attacks, and how it has, in fact, impacted the, uh, the society on the whole. Pew Research Group has done a fascinating study about uh, kind of taking our temperature as a nation with regard to how 9-11 shaped us. The story that really got my attention was the 9-11 Tribute Museum in Lower Manhattan has literally closed. Um, it shut down a week or so ago. Um, and they cited, of course, the same type of uh, same reasoning that we've seen for a lot of businesses closing down. And that was a lack of support after the pandemic. Um, here's a quote from Jennifer Adams, who's the co-founder and CEO of the museum, quote, financial hardship, including lost revenue caused by the pandemic, prevents us from generating sufficient funding to continue to operate the physical museum. Now, this museum opened in 2006. It uh, provides information about 9-11 and the uh, unprecedented rescue and recovery operations, I'm reading from the report here, uh, and the rebuilding of the lower Manhattan and of people's lives. 15 years in, and now the pandemic has made them a casualty, which might beg the question, well, how did this happen? I mean, we saw during the pandemic that a lot of arts groups uh, received funding. I believe the, uh, uh, the Kennedy Center, the Rockefeller center the you know everything on broadway got big boosts as far as their uh whether or not they're going to be uh, able to continue to do their programming 
But this museum shut down, and I thought, this is really terrible. I mean, this is, I've been to, it was, gosh, let's see, it was the winter. Remember the, uh, uh, the, the cyclone bomb, the bomb cyclone attacks, if you will. January of 2018, I joined my daughter, Emily, for her 30th birthday, along with my son-in-law, Brian, daughter, Kaylee, son-in-law, Kevin, a uh, good family friend, Amy Lynn, came along with us. And I was traipsing around in the snow. We actually, the day we went to go see the 9-11 Memorial, I've got some beautiful pictures of my son-in-law, Brian, reading the names at Ground Zero and, and how poignant that was, how powerful it was for him to be there. We were in this driving sl- snowstorm. And uh, unbeknownst to me, for those of you who know my medical history, um, I, I didn't realize I was about two weeks away from being diagnosed with needing open heart surgery. Um, that weather was not conducive for my health. I Thank you, Jesus, that I was able to survive that trip and actually enjoy it, considering we had a red-eye flight there and didn't get a lot of sleep, didn't eat great, but it was, it was a fun trip nonetheless. But I was really struck with the idea that the 9-11 Tribute Museum would shut down, thinking, well, what has happened to us as a nation that all of a sudden... This this isn't important to us anymore. I mean, what what about the, uh, uh, you know, aren't we going to remember our history? I guess that was my, my question. And so I started digging and, and wondering, well, maybe this is just me. You know, maybe this is something that when it comes to remembering the terrorist attacks, uh, 9-11, September 11, 2001, maybe I'm part of this older group that, I mean, doesn't really remember our history all that much. I mean, we as a a nation came together in mighty ways. I remember a dear friend of mine who recently uh, passed away, who's a pretty hardcore liberal, lefty guy, was not a big fan of George W. Bush at all. And we were having correspondence on a variety of different issues leading up to the attacks. I mean, he was working in some industry and I was trying to, you know, find work with their group and uh, supplement my income a little bit. And so we had uh, reestablished this relationship that we had started almost 20 years prior. And uh, I, then the attacks hit and we were dark for a couple of days and then back and forth with the text messaging. And he said, by the way, I got to hand it to you. I think your boy Bush was the right guy for the uh, the job. you know. And even though he had been a diehard Al Gore supporter in the 2000 election, um, most Americans agreed for such a time as that, uh, that President George W. Bush did a great job of rallying the nation, holding the services of the National Cemetery, declaring the state of mourning, then throwing out the first pitch at Yankee Stadium a couple weeks later. And, you know, there, there's a fascinating documentary about how that went together and how many people you saw on the playing field who looked like groundskeepers and Yankees coaches and bat boys and stuff like that were all armed Secret Service agents in case there was an attack on the president. And I remember by doing the work that I did at the time for the Fox uh, television network, which uh, at the time I was driving into Beverly Hills a couple times a week to do what they call commercial billboards, the brought to you by stuff. And we had a session. I mean, September 11th was a Tuesday um, in 2001. My sessions were Mondays and Thursdays. And so I drove in on Thursday and there was nothing but pylons and barricades. And I had a Ford F-150 trying to navigate how to get on the lot, big security clearance. I mean, all the networks were concerned that they were next. And it was just a weird time to be doing what we did because you know everyone just kind of got knocked on their pin. And we came together as a nation. We saw fuel prices go way down because all of a sudden there was this big supply because people weren't going anywhere. You know, I mean, the people were helping each other out. You know, you, you had to take air travel a little more skeptically. 
there, there was just a concern. I remember actually uh, reading uh, the words of a left-leaning political pundit, African-American guy, who said, I'm, I'm not going to lie, I get on a plane now and I see somebody who's got some kind of Arabic descent, or maybe they're wearing a turban or something like that, or a hijab, and it makes me nervous. I mean, we the people were that way. And for probably a good year and change, I think Americans kind of put a lot of their political differences aside and said, let's be a nation again. Let, let's, let's work. Let's work this out. Of course, then President Bush announced Operation Shock and On and Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003. And by the time the 2004 election rolled around, we were over it. You know, we were back to partisan politics and things of that nature. But you have to ask the question, 21 years later, I mean, as when you see Americans who watched the September 11, 2001 attacks, nearly 3,000 dead in New York, Washington, D.C., and just outside of Pennsylvania, um, you know, the military mission in Afghanistan uh, coming to an end almost 20 years to the date after that attack, and people wondering, okay, well, A, was it worth it, and B, do you know where you were? Was this one of those iconic moments? How how has the 9-11, how have, did the 9-11 attacks shape you? I mean, we have millennials right now who are in this country. I mean, I have, Lisa and I are the parents of six, uh, either millennials or Generation Z. Every one of them can tell you exactly where they were on September 11, 2001. Matter of fact, this is the first statistic in the Pew uh, research. If you wonder, have people forgotten 9-11 and what kind of impact it had on people, according to the recent Pew study, and this was conducted the last week in August of this year, um, 93% of Americans age 30 and older say remember say that they remember exactly where they were when the first plane struck the tower. 93%. Now, I bring that up because I know there are a lot of people who are saying, let's never forget, let's never forget. But then you look at the start of World War I or World War II. And now a lot of people, if, you'd be hard-pressed to find people who are with us at the start of World War I. Start of World War II, that's a different conversation. What kind of impact? What kind of impact did John Kennedy's assassination have? Or Bobby Kennedy? Or Martin Luther King Jr.? I mean, the, the, the list goes on. There are certain iconic events. But I, I, it's worth noting that the number of Americans age 30 and older who remember exactly where they were on September 11, 2001 is 93%. That's a good starting point for conversation for us as Christians, as Americans, with regard to how we view this day. Conspiracy theories set aside. How this all happened? Was it an inside job? How did the towers collapse with only two planes hitting and the rocket fuel and the heat, the structural safety? I mean, let's put all that aside for just a moment and look at the macro of how did it impact the people? How has a badly nation that came together immediately kind of drifted apart? Were these the seeds that were sowing at that moment or were sown at that moment that have fueled the division that we have in the culture right now. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll dig deeper into this Pew Research report about how Americans feel, really feel, about the 9-11 attacks. That's coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. Welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and today, as we are preparing for Grandparents' Day, which is coming up this Sunday, this Sunday is also the 21st anniversary of the terrorist attacks on the Twin Towers, on the Pentagon, and the uh, Shanks, was it Shanksville? Uh, Pennsylvania attack that almost was 
Uh, we all remember Flight 93, Let's Roll, and uh, the heroic Americans who sought to uh, avoid another uh, terrorist attack, and unfortunately every member of that flight was killed, but uh, they did so heroically, dying heroically, uh, laying down their lives to protect a potential another terrorist threat. We've been looking at Pew Intercept, uh, Internet Research Studies, and what they have done is they've been surveying adults actually every year for the past 21 years to ask them how the 9-11 attacks have impacted their worldview, their sense of uh, emotional well-being, et cetera, et cetera. And I find it very interesting that um, on the 20th anniversary of the attacks last year, 93% um, of Americans age 30 and older said they not only remember the attacks, they knew exactly where they were during the attacks. Now, conversely, under the age of 30, there's a startling majority of Americans who have no recollection of 9-11, and primarily that's because they were too young to remember or they hadn't been born yet. Remember, Generation Z combined with the millennial generation is the largest population of Americans on the planet right now, and Generation Z is basically age 12 to 25. So you've got the tail end of Generation Z that might have some recollection, but the majority of Generation Z, you know, the group that all think they're transgender, or one out of five do, um, have no recollection of 9-11. In the aftermath, you can imagine how many Americans were feeling sad and lonely. As a matter of fact, if you look back at the statistics from the two weeks right afterwards, 71% uh, of Americans said they felt depressed. 49% uh, said they uh, had difficulty concentrating. About a third of Americans had trouble sleeping. Uh, you remember my guest from last year, Leslie Haskin, who was a survivor, worked for Kemper Insurance. At that point, was in the Twin Towers and escaped. She went into a major depression the day after 9-11, and it's taken her years to recover from that and start a new ministry. Um, when it comes to media coverage, you know, there are a lot of people who say, let's never forget 9-11, but at the same time, they don't want to watch it. Um, in the days afterwards, though the media were nonstop with here are the towers going down, here they're going down, 92% said they didn't want to watch it because it made them feel sad. 77% said they didn't want to watch it because it made them feel frightened. And at the same time, 63%, some of those same people also said, but they couldn't stop watching. And 45% said they actually had fatigue from watching. So then the conspiracy theories show up and people start asking questions. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not a conspiracy theory guy per se, but please hear me out on this. Um, I really have a tougher and tougher time. Maybe it's the older I get, the more of these gray hairs you see on my chin. If you're watching on myhopenow.com, you know what I'm talking about. But I do have a friendly blue shirt on. I like wearing blue. Um, the older I get, the more, I don't want to say skeptical I get, but the more I hope I've developed a healthy skepticism that asks the question, well, now, why is that? And, you know, I'll tell you, after having three kids of my own uh, raised during the parenting years, you know, the you never get any sleep and you never have enough money years. And then Lisa and I come together, we get married. Now our broods have six kids total and three plus grandchildren, about fourth grandchild about to be born next month. You begin to, when you start watching the younger kids, you know, uh, Riley is 11. She's in sixth grade. She's in middle school. Heaven help us, right? And then Isaac just started pre-kindergarten. He just turned five and just missed the cutoff for kindergarten. So he's in pre-K. And then Zipporah is about 18 months old. And Isaac and Zipporah are five and 18 months going on about 21 and 17, right? I mean, they just, they process life a lot differently. But it's interesting how we as grandparents, talking about Grandparents Day coming up this Sunday, will also process the parenting way that we handled life because we see things now in our grandkids' lives that we didn't see in our own kids' lives. We have hopefully some maturity, a little more wisdom, 
a little more, you know, take a step back and look at the macro view. Don't get too hung up on the uh, on the micro. And I think it's it's healthy to look back after 21 years and ask the question, how did this happen? You know, we know about Khalid Shade Mohammed. We know about the visas. We know about the guys who were quote unquote students who were here planning this as kind of an attack from within, within our own borders anyway. But then asking the question, well, okay, four airplanes, all of them had plenty of fuel that were all going to be going uh, transit, cross country rather. And, and they had to have enough fuel because that fuel was key toward, you know, blowing up or bringing down the buildings. But then I think when people ask questions like, well, how did this all happen? I'm not a structural engineer. I mean, I'm not going to pretend to sit here and tell you I know how all this happens. Um, and yet it's interesting when people do look at the this attack or these attacks from a macro standpoint, you can look at it and say, okay, well, how significant is this? Because some people would like to try to downplay history over the course of time. It's just another day. It was just another event. It's all Bush's fault. It's all the Democrats' fault. It's all somebody's fault. And we'll just dismiss it. And that's one of the things about the current era that really does concern me is the fact that we, you know, what's the old adage? People who don't learn from history are destined to repeat it. Well, I'm not suggesting that there's another 9-11 attack on hand, but we would be really naive to think that there hasn't been one plotted. I mean, the World Trade Center attacks in 93. I mean, there have been a couple of uh, inside jobs that have happened here prior to 9-11 that make you wonder, okay, well, my concern is when I look back on the 9-11 attacks, has this drifted from our memory collectively as a nation? I mean, obviously, the days and weeks and months after it happened, we were a nation, one nation under God, indivisible. We were united. You know, united we stand, divided we fall. And then we got over it. Midterm showed up in 2002, and then 2004 presidential election was kind of ugly, and, and then things started to happen. But this is very interesting because when you think about one of the, the, one of the top historical events in my mind in American history, I do so without any sort of emotion for that. And, and I, I hope that we as Christians can be sober-minded and objective enough to be able to look at certain events and say, this is important, not because it's important to me, not because I like the outcome of it, but it's important in terms of how it shaped our nation. And Pew did a research study in 2016. It was coming up on the 15th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, and they asked Americans, what do you think are the key uh, events of shaping United States history in the modern era. What are the 10, in other words, what are the top 10, per, uh, 10 historic events, rather, that have occurred in your lifetime that you think have had the greatest impact on the country? Now, think about it. That's a great question. Now, I love good questions, don't you? I think, I think we learn a lot from asking good questions, and oftentimes, good questions tell us more than good answers do. Uh, Michael Card has a rhetorical question song called Could It Be? And he deals with that very issue. Could, talking about God, could it be you make your presence known more often by your absence? Ooh, I love that. Could it be that questions tell us more than answers ever do? If they lead to more questions, absolutely. But we live in a culture right now that wants an answer now, that wants to win the argument on the internet now. I'll just Google. Google becomes God. And instead of asking the Lord for guidance in prayer, we go to Google or some other search engine function, and that gives us our response. So a question here is what are the 10 top events that have shaped American history that happened during your lifetime? Now, I could very easily say, well, I think the start of World War 
2, the attack on Pearl Harbor, is one of the top 10 events, but that didn't happen during my lifetime. For me, the top 10 events that happened in my lifetime start with the John Kennedy assassination, 1963, since I was born in 1961. And then you could just kind of put it on from there. Civil rights movement, et cetera, et cetera. You could come up with, you know, 10 easily. The moonwalk, I mean, of course. Uh, the attempt on Ronald Reagan's life and the knocking down of the, uh, the Berlin Wall. I mean, t take your pick. There's so many different events. But it was very interesting when they asked adults, what were the top 10 events? I'll tell you what the top five were. Uh, number five was the Vietnam War. 20% of Americans said that the Vietnam War was one of the public's top historical events that happened to our country that shaped our nation in our lifetime. Uh, number four was the John F. Kennedy assassination. That was 21% of Americans. 22% uh, of Americans said the tech revolution. Now that's still unfolding. So that may work its way up higher and higher. Um, 40% of Americans said the election of President Obama. And I can see where, as we look at this, that from a civil rights standpoint, the fact that we'd gone from a nation of slavery to segregation and Jim Crow laws to actually uh, electing a man whose father was African-American and mother was Anglo um, and thereby identified as African-American, um, to have a black president was a huge event in the United States. 40% of Americans in this Pew survey said that that was one of the top 10 historical events to take place in their lifetime. But number one, and we're talking far and away the winner in this category, was 9-11. 76% of Americans surveyed in the final week of uh, well, the middle of June through the 4th of July 2016, coming up on the 15th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, 76% of Americans said that 9-11 was the most significant historical event that shaped their nation that happened during their lifetime. I'd be curious to get your take on this. Drop me a line at roger at thebottomlineshow.com or you can write to me at, at rogermarsh.com and let me know what you think are the top 10 historical events that happened during your lifetime that have impacted the nation. Some final reflections on 9-11 as we come up on the 21st anniversary of the dreaded attacks. That's coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. Newport Bay Mortgage will steer you in the right direction toward the truth about reverse mortgages. Owner Cliff enjoys educating every client and wants to debunk the misconceptions you may have heard. You'll see that an FHA-approved reverse mortgage gives you financial freedom. You can use it to pay bills, cover unexpected expenses, or watch your children and grandchildren enjoy themselves while you're still alive. Cliff informs you of the facts. Drawing from his 40 years of reverse mortgage experience, you must be 62 years or older for the FHA program and at least 55 for a conventional high-volume program. It doesn't affect any credit score points and can even be refinanced after one year. When considering ways to enjoy your liquidity in, before, or for retirement, you need Newport Bay Mortgage. Contact Cliff today. Visit kbrightradio.com slash reverse. That's kbrightradio.com slash reverse or 714-741-8080. NMLS 332959. Newport Bay Mortgage, an equal opportunity housing lender. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, a rather somber edition of this Good News Friday program. Uh, we are taking a look at a number of statistical analyses provided to us by Pew Research Company with regard to the 9-11 attacks. How did Americans feel in the weeks and months after the attacks first happened? Then 15 years later, why did so many American adults feel that the 9-11 attacks was, was, were the top event that took place that impacted their country? Uh, one way or the other. By the way, interestingly enough, um, 
70 percent of Republicans and 70 percent of Democrats had the same answer. So this was one place where the old bipartisan spirit um, w- was definitely taking hold. Uh, but, you know, I mentioned something earlier. You know, it's interesting to see that in the middle of these statistics and we see how important 9-11 is, it was rather horrifying at the same time to hear that the New York City 9-11 Tribute Museum had to close in the middle of August simply because of a lack of funding. And that was because they weren't selling enough tickets because enough people weren't coming there um, because of the pandemic and other reasons. Um, You may be interested to wonder, well, what's going to happen with all the artifacts? Well, the artifacts will be moved to the New York State Museum in Albany. Um, uh, They basically said they're, you know, over a decade, the Tribute Museum has shared educational resources for teachers and students online, uh, reaching classrooms around the world with personal stories. The association is proud to continue the mission and now being online with an interactive engagement with the, uh, the uh, 9-11 community. Now, what's interesting about this story is um, there the very well-known National September 11th Memorial and Museum in New York City is still going to stay open. Uh, the Tribute Museum is the one that is shutting down, and this was the one that uh, is probably seen as the less, uh, more engaged of the two. But I, I have to admit that I am really happy to see that so many people still see the 9-11 attacks as an event that really did help to shape our nation. And I, when I say help, I mean, obviously, uh, something that happens in what seems to be a negative can actually turn out to be a positive. But I hope for us as Christians, especially living as strangers and aliens in this foreign land that we call the world right now, that we can be salt and light and that we would spend our time focusing on the cause of Christ, understanding that God has blessed this nation mightily in spite of all the attacks against it and the attacks that sometimes we've been a part of. When you look at the role that Christians have played in slavery and even promoting abortion and things like that. But thanks be to God that his hand of providence is on us and that even an event as horrible as the 9-11 attacks that cost thousands of lives and caused all sorts of major damage and also kind of shook the collective psyche of our nation can be an instrument that God can use for good and to bring about healing. Uh, right after the 9-11 attacks, remember the Bible became the best-selling book in the, in the world, it seemed like, once again. Let us not use comfort as mistaken identity for who we are as Christians, but rather that we would look to seek whatever opportunity we might have, even if it's a tragedy as terrible as 9-11, to spread the good news of the gospel with those who desperately need to hear it. And that's the bottom line. All right, for our KCBC listeners, enjoy the rest of your day. You've got uh, uh, Rabbi Schneider and Discovering the Jewish Jesus coming up next. For those who remain, today's a big day at the box office. Life Mark, the outstanding new pro-life adoption movie uh, produced by the Kendrick brothers and starring uh, Stephen Kendrick, or excuse me, Alex Kendrick and Kirk Cameron. Uh, That's in theaters today. Uh, I recently had a conversation with the Kendrick brothers about this movie. Uh, We're going to hear that again in its entirety on the other side of this break and give you a chance to win tickets to see Life Mark today. It opens tonight. Uh, be listening for those opportunities on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Well, good news, good news, good news. Good news Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and the good news is Life Mark, the outstanding new pro adoption movie, is in theaters starting today, and we have tickets to give away. But first, I want you to hear about why this movie is so important. My conversation with producers Stephen and Alex Kendrick here on the Bottom Line. Well, special guest joining me today here on the Bottom Line Show to talk about a very special project. And I I do mean special. When you look at the movie Life Mark, you're going to say, wow, it's got the Kendrick brothers all over it. And of course, Alex Kendrick is on the screen. 
But then when you find out the backstory of it, it really is an achievement, a testament to the faith and family and also to the adoptive process as well. Uh, Alex Kendrick, Stephen Kendrick are with us today here on the program. And if you're watching at My Hope Now, of course, you can see the brothers looking very handsome. Stephen's looking taller than Alex right now. <laughs> is that a little competitive? Is that a little competitive? That's, that's movie guys, magic. That's exactly right. <laughs> taller than I am. Guys, welcome, welcome back to the bottom line, Shell. So how did how Thank did you. you how did you hear about the story of life, Mark? Kind of take us soup to nuts on this thing. Well, we we were finishing Overcomer in early 2019, and Kirk Cameron called us. He's been a friend for years. Yeah. He said, guys, I just saw this powerful short documentary that has me in tears. It was just so uh, meaningful to me. And I think it speaks boldly about the value of life and the ministry of adoption. Stephen and I watched it and, uh, and we were captured by it as well. It just gripped us. Stephen has adopted his daughter, Mia. Kirk himself had, had adopted four of his six kids. Kirk's wife, Chelsea, is adopted. So it was just uh, rang true. And so we started praying about, should we do a feature film? and all had a piece about it. So Kirk joined us as executive producers, and we made this movie Life Mark, true story of an 18-year-old girl who is laying on the abortion table. Here's the words, get up, there's still time. She believes that was from the Lord. She gets off the abortion table at the last second before the procedure was started. She places her baby for adoption. When that baby is adopted and grows up to be 18 in a loving Christian home, he then meets his biological mother just to say thank you, wraps her up in a big hug, and she melts. And she always wondered if he would hate her. And, uh, and so that interaction in real life was filmed by a family friend. And we got to see that raw footage. And, and of course, it was put in this short documentary called I Lived on Parker Avenue. And so when we saw that and we met the real people, met the, talked to the real families, uh, they said they'd be honored for this story to be told because the biological mother, and David, the, the, the biological son, who's now adopted, um, they both speak. They travel around the country and speak. And so we said, yeah, this is a beautiful story. So we made Life Mark and just finished it. And now it comes out September 9th. And we can't wait to see what the Lord does with the story. Well, I'm talking with uh, Stephen and Alex Kendrick. I almost called you David for a second there, Alex. Uh, the, the, the new movie is called Life Mark, as they mentioned. We have a trailer up at thebottomlineshow.com. Stephen, what's it like when you take a hold of you know, these other projects that you and your brother, I should say brothers, have worked on? Because now Shannon's right. getting some getting into the act as well. Um, when you take a project, you know, oftentimes it's a story that might have been an original concept of yours, uh, maybe a book that you've read somewhere. This one kind of came out of left field. And with Kirk kind of, you know, not I was... Uh, breathing down your neck, but maybe elbowing you in the side saying, I, I'm passionate about this. I want in. Where do you begin as a producer saying, okay, we know how we would treat this story, but we also right. have to be true to the story too. Talk about that. Sure. Well, uh, it's interesting. All of our movies begin with a season of prayer and uh, traditionally the Lord has given us basically truths from scripture, original ideas, and then true stories that we will write into our films and we'll be able to be extremely creative in how we unfold the story. With Life Mark, when God started pointing us to this, we were by faith moving forward, not understanding why, but we had this piece about moving forward with this story. We shot it last year. We had no idea Roe v. Wade was about to be overturned. Right. We had no idea that the church right now needs to rise up to a greater degree of courage and speak to their state senators now to speak in their local communities and to rise up with compassion and courage to show uh, love to these girls that are going to 
be having unwanted pregnancies, but Planned Parenthood won't be their savior anymore, you know? And now also speaking with compassion to these babies in the womb, and then also couples that want to have children but can't and want to adopt, being able to to start adoption ministries in their communities. God's timing is always perfect. And now we see in retrospect that he was leading that whole process. But because it's a true story, there's advantages and disadvantages. Uh, We interviewed all the real people. We tried to quote them a ton in the actual script that you see in the movie. So many of the lines in the movie come directly out of their mouths, either in the documentary or in the interviews that we did with them. Also, having the real people show up on set was really cool. Yeah, they're watching themselves and they're like, that's exactly what happened, you know, (laughs) to have the real Melissa there in the scene with the abortion clinic. And she's watching Marissa Hampton act out that scene and she's got the earphones on and she's choking back tears because she's now reliving that moment, Mm -hmm. you know, that took place 25 years ago. And now she's hugging Marissa Hampton for capturing the emotions so well. Mm -hmm. And then now for us to be able to show them the, the, finished film david scotton just called me a few days ago uh, or texted us and he said this movie is so powerful the way it's unfolded he said i'm so excited about being able to share this story with other people so uh we tried to honor the real story and how we did it so it's not as much of a three-act structure uh as a traditional hollywood movie but it works and when people are watching it the flashbacks that go back 20 years with de-aged kirk cameron and rebecca rogers to show them what they looked like 20 years ago, which is really some cool special effects that went on behind the scenes. But we're also excited because people that try to argue with what you're communicating, it's a true story. And so when we lay out a true story and we just say, look, people try to say that you you don't want to have this baby, you know, that's unwanted because it's going to grow up in poverty or die or kill itself. You know, no, watch this movie and watch a true story and watch someone who's so grateful that his mom chose life. He's so grateful for his adopted parents. He's so grateful for that he can be a blessing to this world and the beauty of how God can bring healing and restoration. We love that it shines in life, Mark. Stephen Kendrick, Alex Kendrick, my guest today here on The Bottom Line, they are Stephen's executive producer. Alex is an exec producer and also has a starring role in the movie Life Mark. The trailer is up at thebottomlineshow.com. It's in theater September 9th, and I highly recommend two thumbs way up. Uh, Alex, you talked about, or Stephen was just talking about how important it was to tell the whole story and, and understanding there are going to be some people who are watching this who might feel a little you know, displaced because they think they've lost something in the culture with the overturning of Roe versus Wade. But one statistic that I've, I've heard often is the number of adoptive parents who want to you know, have a, a child placed in their home and how it far outpaces the number of kids who actually get placed. And then George Barna and I were talking a couple of weeks ago about the fact that there are so many women who don't even know that's a, an option. Can you talk about the scene? The, the one scene that got me is when Melissa and her boyfriend are sitting in the room and they're reading all the letters from the parents. I'm mm. gonna cry just thinking about it. All these people who are just saying, if you're willing, we're willing. We wanna welcome this child. Uh, talk about getting that scene so right. I mean, you, you guys nailed it, uh, but why that was so important to include in this story. Well, it is part of the true story. Uh, Melissa, when she was a teenage girl in uh, rough upbringing, and so she's living with her boyfriend in a small uh, apartment that they can barely afford on their part-time jobs after high school. Um, And so when they determined they're going to allow this baby to be adopted, 
They went to a, an agency, it's the only one they knew about, and they were provided uh, numerous letters from couples that were hoping to adopt that would just share about themselves. So they're reading dozens and dozens of letters. They got to one about a couple that had lost two children already due to a, a, a genetic disease um, at birth, and they were hoping to adopt. And they talked about they loved outdoors, camping, fishing, things like that. Well, Melissa loved those things as well. So she said, I just have one question for this mom. And she called the adoption agency. They allowed her to connect to this couple who was seeking to adopt. When they answered the phone, Melissa said, can I just ask you one question? How do you bait your hook when you go fishing? <laughs> the the soon-to-be adoptive mother thought that was a curious question. And she explained how she baited her hook, which was exactly like Melissa did it. And it's a very unique way. It's not what you think. When you see the movie, you'll understand. And, and so Melissa said, that's perfect. That's the way I do it. I want you to be the mother. And now that sounds very interesting that that was the only question she asked. But we also see God's providence in that because uh, David was adopted by that couple who loved him, raised him, took care of him. And he's doing so well in life as a young lawyer. He's in his 20s now. And so um, what a beautiful story. But that process of reading through all the letters, Melissa was overwhelmed with how many couples are trying to adopt. Mm -hmm. And so here we are, a nation that has had over 60 million abortions. Mm. And we think of all these couples who would love and treasure the opportunity to adopt and take care of a child. Mm. That is a ministry option that I hope we have more of in the future. Oh, you know, Roe versus Wade has been overturned. And, uh, and we are encouraging churches, political leaders, support this. Let these children live and let them be adopted into loving homes. And yes, not every story is the exact same, but there is hope. There is redemption. There is life. Life is precious and beautiful. We can't just throw it away. Well, Stephen and Alex Kendrick are the executive producers of the brand new movie called Life Mark, which is in theaters today. We have a couple of pair of passes courtesy of our friends at Fathom Events to give away. 800-227-5278. The movie's in theaters tonight and it plays through next Thursday night. So go see this movie in the theaters. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. The number to get you through to the bottom line. I'm talking with Alex Kendrick today here on The Bottom Line. Plays Sean in the new movie Life Mark. Is also one of the executive producers. Along with his brothers, Shannon, who's not with us today. But Stephen, is, is Shannon camera shy? Stephen, is that why we're not talking to all three of you? He's definitely an introvert. And he does not <laughs> like to be on camera. Yeah. Shannon is behind the scenes uh, solving problems, managing money, helping with computer issues. There you go. Setting up health insurance, that, those kind of things. And uh, But he is really good at what he does. We couldn't do what we do without him. And uh, it's it's amazing how the Lord put us together in the same praying home with godly parents. Yes. And we love we love each other, love working together, and our kids love each other. So it's, I think pretty, it's pretty beautiful. It's phenomenal. You're an adoptive parent. I mean, you mentioned that Kirk Cameron and his wife have four adopted children. Um, the big families involved in this process, your director, the father of eight. I mean, it's really, I, I'm feeling kind of, you know, uh, out of the sorts here with only three kids of my own, but then I've got three others from, you know, my blended family situation. So at least I can sit at the table with you with six kids, uh, but talk about this after you've watched it, you know, because when you're working on it, you've got all those things to think about the direction, the lighting, everything like that, the distribution, sure. all that stuff. Now you had a chance to sit back and watch it. Steven is an adoptive parent. How did it hit you? 
Well, my favorite, one of my favorite scenes is the scene Alex described just a minute ago when she makes the phone call, because it's going back and forth between these two emotionally charged couples that have things they desperately want at the same time. Right. And they're trying to make these crisis decisions. And Kirk's line at that moment of we got to, we can trust God one step at a time, even if she changes her mind about this adoption, we have to make the decision. We're going to trust God by faith and take one step at a time. That's the story of my adoption with Mia, that basically it was a God-led decision in prayer. My wife and I didn't understand after having four biological children, we know why God was leading us to adopt, but he turned our hearts towards that. And we moved forward by faith and discovered that, again, you let Jesus drive and amazing things happen, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. and he's going to take you to places you never expected and do things in you and through you that you never expected. And so through that adoption process, we saw Mia go from being an unwanted burden in a communist country to being a beloved blessing in a Christian home in America. Recently, she's come to Christ, been baptized, and she's actually been on a mission trip now and shared the gospel with other people. She is sunshine in our family. God has given us this incredible love for her. And he's also taught us a lot about our spiritual adoption through the process that uh, every person who gives their life to Christ, God yes. adopts them into their, into his family. And, uh, and through that journey, believers can actually present the gospel using adoption stories. So I would tell people, don't limit God. Uh, don't always pick your comfort over in this short life that we have over the potential of trusting God for something great. But we hope adoption ministries will be able to take this film and use it in a big way. We hope that uh, women's pregnancy centers will be able to mm -hmm. use LifeMark to give to girls when they're on the fence about what are they going to do for the future. And so we think the Lord could mightily use the church right now to rise up with clarity and compassion and conviction and to be able to overcome evil with good that is going on in our culture. The movie Life Mark is a very, very redemptive story. I love the fact that, you know, of course, Melissa and you know, David, they have that chance to have that reconnection point. Uh, Alex, what was it like to address that part of the story? It's a big part of the story, obviously. Birth mom waits till son's 18, wants to reach out, wants to reconnect. You know, you're playing uh, Melissa's husband, the grown-up Melissa at that point. And that had to be a very tender moment. You know, when you when we see the the, the trip, the journey, you know, getting out to the home and actually meeting for the first time, uh, it sounded... It, I saw that as an endorsement for saying when the time is right, it's a good idea to have the birth parent, you know, come together with the uh, child who was released for adoption. Talk about that process and, and how you approached it in the film. That's one of the most powerful pieces in the short documentary we watched when it was filmed when they initially met. And, uh, and we did the feature film exactly like it really happened in real yeah. life when they when they get to her house she's pacing inside back and forth it's been uh, almost 19 years since she has held this baby that she placed for adoption and now she gets to give him another hug and he's a young man and to see how he turned out and um and she was nervous about how he would feel about it but she was uh surprised at his loving manner, his gratefulness at her decision. And again, it just melted her heart, brought a sense of healing as well. Mm -hmm. So we watched the real footage, talked to the real people who were a part of that. Matter of fact, the day we filmed that scene, they were on set with us. So the mm. real Melissa is sitting there wow. watching this scene. The real Scott and family, his adoptive parents, were sitting there watching this scene being filmed. Mm -hmm. And we filmed it four or five times when uh, the movie Melissa comes out, 
stands on the porch, wants to be gracious and proper, but just emotionally falls apart, rushes up and hugs him, and he embraces her and it just melts. And it's just a, a beautiful scene. And uh, and so we honored what really happened. And, um, you know, when, when you have those opportunities for um, redemption, for forgiveness, you know, she asks him point blank, are you mad at me? And he mm -hmm. says, I have never been mad at you. Right. I wondered if you ever thought about me, but I've never been mad at you. You gave me life. You gave me the family, the opportunity to be adopted by the family I have. And I'm so grateful. Mm -hmm. And so they, they were able to talk. They've been on numerous interviews together. Now they live, you know, Melissa lives in Indiana. David lives in New Orleans. So they're, they're not close, uh, you know, geographically, but they have been together a number of times. And uh, now, I mean, the, even the novel that's coming out, we conferred with the real Melissa, look through this novel, tell us if everything's good with you. And um, so it, it was just a beautiful process to, to work with the real people who are loving and gracious people, uh, know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and want to honor him. So again, uh, doing this movie was an honor for us. And the fact that it's a true story and we think is going to make a significant impact on the lives of those who see it. I'm talking with Alex and Stephen Kendrick today here on The Bottom Line, co-executive producers of the brand new movie called Life Mark. Highly recommend it. We have a link for the trailer up at thebottomlineshow.com. It's in theater September 9th. Guys, we've been talking a lot about uh, David and his mother in this uh, scenario here. Uh, he also does have a reconciliation of sorts with his dad as well. And it's a little mm -hmm. more subdued. It's a little more tender. And I know as a dad, uh, my kids are all you know biological children, but nonetheless, I, I couldn't help but wonder what was going through his mind. Can you give us a little insight as to what you're hoping LifeMark does for the dad in the equation who they were teenagers, they didn't know what to do, but they decided to place the kid up for adoption. Maybe dad might've even thought of the other option and kind of had to be mm -hmm. talked into it talk about what you hope dads will take away from this movie well it's interesting this movie appeals both to men and to women and uh if you follow the story of brian in the movie uh lowry brown is one of the strongest actors in the entire film who plays brian the biological father and you see him going through this whole journey of initially he's freaking out as a teenager that his girlfriend's pregnant doesn't know what to do they can barely feed themselves much less take care of a child right. and his own mom had gone through an adoption and uh uh, and it was a negative experience for her. So he was afraid that he, this child would, would hate him if you put him up for adoption. So there was the contemplation of abortion early on as a teenager. You know, teenagers are young, they're self-centered, they're fearful. He didn't have the support of, of a church community around him. But then later on, when they make the decision to have the baby, Brian's a part of choosing that adoptive parents. He's in that conversation. And you fast forward to as an adult, you see him now meeting this young man, David, and he's blown away, you know, because there's kindness there. There's a mutual respect that they have there. And David thanks him again for being a part of that decision uh, for him to be born, you know, and but we love how the uh, the uh, the biological dad, when he sees how well David has turned out, there's a moment where mm. Lowry Brown, who plays the biological dad, shakes hands with Kirk Cameron's character, which is the adopted dad. Mm -hmm. And he says, I want to thank you for raising him so much better than I ever could. Mm. And it's just such a touching moment because yeah. 
there's that again it's different when dudes are talking to dudes right, as opposed to right. women talking with women you know yeah. uh because they're they're not crying and slobbering all over one another they're maintaining right. their man card at the same time but you also see the meaningfulness of that mutual respect yeah. that takes place and really jimmy scotton the adopted dad in real life uh i my hat goes out to him because he stepped into that situation and was just this even keeled, steady, responsible, loving husband and father. And uh, David is so grateful for his adopted dad being that for him and being what he needed growing up. Boy, well, Life Mark is going to touch a lot of hearts. It's going to bring a lot of healing uh, to many families who might have been through a, a difficult adoption or just the whole process of a, facing a crisis pregnancy, as we call it right now, and yet showing the hope and the redemption. It's a very, very redemptive and uh, loving story as well. Uh, Alex Kendrick is uh, one of the stars of the movie and executive producer, along with his brother Stephen Kendrick co-executive producer as well. Uh, Kirk Cameron's all over this movie too and plays a, I was so thrilled to watch the, you know, here's who they are in real life real. Cause first I thought, come on, Kirk, wake up, man. You're so mellow. You're just kind of, you know, you're, you're Kirk Cameron. <laughs> right. and, but then I realized he was Jimmy and I just, oh yes. my gosh, he just completely nailed that part. Um, can't give him enough praise uh, for that as well. Uh, guys, what's your hope? we got 60 seconds left. What's your hope that someone who goes to the theater on September 9th or that opening weekend, which is so huge, and watches the movie, their hearts are touched, and then they're going to ask the question, now what do I do? What, what's the now what for them? So uh, first, that they would see life as a gift from God that should be treasured and protected. Secondly, that they would see adoption as a beautiful ministry option should they be in a scenario to consider that. It is a great ministry. But you can go to lifemarkmovie.com, lifemarkmovie.com. We have all the connections with the movies, but also uh, ministry channels for someone who wants to learn more about adoption or more about healing or more about, you know, redemption or, or what do I do now? Counseling. You can go to our site and see a number of ministries there to reach out to that are ready to help you. So we don't just want to minister to you through the movie, but also through the resources. So lifemarkmovie.com, get your tickets there. If you'd like to go see the film comes out September 9th. And again, we hope you are blessed. All right. Well, it's been a blessing to have you guys here with us on the program. Alex Kendrick, Stephen Kendrick, co-executive producers of the brand new movie Life Mark. LifeMarkMovie.com is up at the thebottomlineshow.com. Uh, guys, always great to get some time with you. Thanks for being with us today here on the program. Thank you. God Thank bless. Thank you. Appreciate it. And that concludes my conversation with Stephen and Alex Kendrick, the co-executive producers of the brand new pro adoption movie called Life Mark. LifeMarkMovie.com is up at thebottomlineshow.com. And you can see this interview in its entirety at MyHopeNow.com. We have a couple of passes to give away to this outstanding movie, courtesy of our friends at Fathom Events. And I want you to have them. Give Teresa a call right now, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278, that's the number to get you through to the bottom line. Let Wilson Financial Services help you identify proprietary financial strategies for your wealth that work for your life. Let's revisit our one-year CD. Had a client who had $500,000 of retained earnings in his corporation for the last three years. I said, if you'd have put that into this account three years ago, you'd have seventy-five dollars to $100,000 of interest versus what you have now, which is a nice round number. Had a client sell his house, had $450,000 in the bank. I told him, is he really not likely to buy a house in the next 12 months? You want to leave this in the bank earning nothing? Or would you like to earn some interest on it over the next 12 months? So he said, how much? I said, well, how about between 20 and 30,000? He says, zero versus 20 or 30,000. Yeah, he says, I like the 20 or 30,000. Sounds better. 
Aren't you tired of earning nothing with all the money you have in the bank? Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or go to kbrightradio.com forward slash Wilson Financial for simply better alternatives. My thanks again to Stephen and Alex Kendrick for joining me today here on this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. The brand new movie Life Mark is in theaters today. It's got a one, it's kind of an interesting Fathom Events release. We're giving away tickets, by the way, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800 the number to get you through to the bottom line. Fathom Events typically does like a Monday night or a Tuesday night. They do one night, maybe one or two nights in a row. This time, they've done a Fathom release where it opens tonight, September, well, actually today, September 9th, it's playing all day all across the country, and then it continues playing consecutively through Thursday, September 15th. So when you call to get these passes, know that you can use them anytime over the next week, but you have to use them soon. I'm encouraging people to go today because opening night, opening day at the box office sends a message to Hollywood, and here's the message. The message is the pro-life community, Christians in particular are sick and tired of the leftist lie that abortion is necessary because, well, it's your only option if you get a pregnancy that you weren't counting on. If you have an unplanned pregnancy, your options are to become a parent, to deliver the child and release that child for adoption, or to abort the child. There are three options, not just two, not just one. And LifeMark makes a very powerful uh, plea to parents who might find themselves in this situation to consider adoption. It's a fantastic option. I know it has been for all the makers of this movie. I know my own family has been impacted by adoption as well, and you will too, because let's face it, when you get right down to it, that's the core of who we are as Christians. We have been adopted into God's holy family forever and ever, and that's the bottom line.